For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Romans 1, verse 17. Welcome to Canaan Bound Podcast, a podcast designed to offer the Christian rest during life's journey. This podcast is a compilation of devotional resources shared by those who support the teaching of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the Wells. My name is Tom Barthel, glad to be serving as your host for this episode. This is episode number 136. Wicked or righteous people? Does the Bible paint an accurate picture of the world? I'm sure you've noticed it. The idea comes up in the very first psalm and is echoed over and over throughout Scripture. It seems you can only fall into one of two categories. Either you are righteous or you are wicked. Do you ever wonder if this picture is accurate? What about the sort of righteous or the kind of bad in the world? Is the Bible correct to lump everyone into two very opposite extremes? Which side is the philanthropist on? Which side is a peace-loving adherent to Buddhism on? Which side am I on when I don't measure up to the love and kindness of people like them? The division of wicked and righteous has to do with faith in the Lord. However, I have often seen unbelievers who don't seem to fit neatly into the wicked camp. Not every unbeliever can be described as, it says in Romans 1, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. That's not what we see. That's simply not the unbelieving world my child sees every day, nor is it the one I always see. Scott, the paleontologist from the PBS show Dinosaur Train, seems to outright deny the creator of God. Creator, and God is the one who made all things. But he doesn't seem to be an evil person. He doesn't fit in the description of Romans 1 of those who deny the creator. The Dalai Lama denies Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, yet he isn't out to kill the infidel. Most consider the Dalai Lama to be gentle and nice. Many adherents to Islam also live peaceful and orderly lives. At times, their kindness surpasses that of many Christians. Now add to this the fact that not every Christian looks so clean-cut all the time. They sometimes blend right in with the wicked and can be easily labeled as kinda bad. Is the Bible wrong to make these two labels? How can we say every unbeliever is wicked and every believer is righteous? To call the Bible inaccurate about these labels is to miss the point. The two sides aren't based on our evaluation of wicked and righteous. They are based on God's evaluation. And God's evaluation is that all are wicked, all have sinned. They are by nature evil in his eyes. There are two camps Because when God restores the sinner, he doesn't just give them a boost. He declares them righteous. Not on the basis of what they have done or not done, but rather on the basis of his own redeeming love. We have been made holy, the writer to the Hebrews says, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. 
and also in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Either you trust in Jesus or you don't. You are either righteous through Christ or you remain wicked. Faith is always the dividing line. Here's the real thing. You and I should be wondering, am I helping my children get the right worldview? It's in or out. There are only two camps, alive in Jesus or dead in sin. And don't worry, your sin today did not disqualify you or make you no longer righteous. All fall short of the glory of God, but all are justified, freely declared righteous through faith in Jesus. There are only two sides to fall on. One is by faith, and that is you today. The promises for the righteous, the blessings for the righteous, the goodness of God for the righteous. These are all gifts. And by his grace, they are poured out on you and all who trust in Jesus each and every day. You are not sort of good. You are righteous in his sight. It's his book. It's his world. And he describes it accurately. Romans 1.17 For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here's a song shared by Chris Dreisbach. You are my righteousness. You know the secrets of my heart, my Lord. And you know the countless times I wasn't good enough I wasn't strong enough, but you made me what I couldn't hold to be. You are my righteousness, I am your sin. What an amazing exchange. I'm declared innocent, outside and in. It's not my fault I don't like to take the blame But you carried all the crimes of everyone From every time alone Just like they were all your own You are my righteousness I am your sin
Once more, we turn to the book of Job for God's Word for You from Pastor Timothy Smith. God's Word for You, Job 41, verses 27 to the end of the chapter. First, down to verse 29. Iron, we're talking about Leviathan, where God is. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to be but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. These three verses tell us why a monster like Leviathan is so fearless. None of mankind's great weapons amount to anything but pinpricks. The smelting of iron and the creation of the bronze alloy go back nearly to the very creation of the universe. Five generations down from Adam's son Cain, we find his descendant Tubal-Cain who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron in Genesis 4. Projectile weapons like arrows and sling stones were also around from the most ancient times, although in the Bible, the story of Hagar contains the earliest mention of that kind of weapon in Genesis 21. But even a good old-fashioned club would be nothing to the great Leviathan. There's a snapshot of ancient warfare in the phrase, the rattling of the lance. The word rattling can refer to the custom of the soldiers who beat their spears against their shields before a battle to remind their opponents of the sound of battle and call up the memory of fear. Or it can refer to the hissing, whirring sound of the javelin in fight, in flight. Remember, tal, 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 from a few verses ago. Both of them are frightening sounds, but not to Leviathan. As Luther would say, against Leviathan, with might of ours cannot be done. Job didn't have the weapons to face the mightiest visible creature on earth, and we still certainly don't have the arsenal to face the mightiest invisible thing in the universe, the devil himself. Only God could defeat Satan, and God did. Verses 30 to 32. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Well, whether in the mud or in the water, Leviathan leaves an impressive wake. My sons and I um, have spent time together in canoes on lakes in southern Wisconsin from time to time. Just a hint of a breeze and the current of the river that passes through the lake were enough to make us work pretty hard in some places to put our boats where we wanted them to go or to turn them around. And when a motorboat speeds by, the big waves from the boat's wake make us bob around like toys in a bathtub. We can only imagine the brine and the foam churned up by Leviathan. If we think that's impressive, we should remember the kind of destruction that the devil leaves in his wake. Sin, death, destruction, murder, adultery, war, horror, terror. These things are the wreckage of the devil's storm of sin. Last two verses. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. These words end the Lord's questions about Leviathan. He warns that Leviathan is truly a king in its realm since all the proud animals are subject to it. Even mankind must fear 
but we turn away from the animal and examine the spiritual realm to see the king who dominates our earth with his wicked control over temptation. This is the king of the locusts from Revelation 9.11, the angel of the abyss, whose name is Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. God has wanted Job to consider everything in the world, but not just some things, to see that we must look to God and put our trust in God above everything else. He is the king of kings. We look to him above everything. These passages about Leviathan have uncovered some things that help us identify our true enemy, the devil. Leviathan might be powerful, but Satan is powerful and immortal, a mighty being of spirit and malice who wants to tempt us away from God and into his abyss forever. That's why we put our trust in the Lord. He promised to defeat the devil from the very beginning, and the victory of the cross is the fulfillment of that promise that began in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus has won. The devil is defeated. Martin Luther also used the Lord's description of Leviathan, nothing on earth is its equal, as a description of the devil thrashing around in the world. Luther surrounds the warning about the devil with a reassurance about God, our mighty fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. He helps us free from every need that has us now or taken. The old evil foe now means deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight. On earth is not his equal. With might of ours can not be done. Soon were our loss affected. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. You ask, who is this? Jesus Christ it is, the Almighty Lord, and there's no other God. He holds the field forever. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. This next devotion is based off of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, shared by Pastor Mark Falk. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, Winning Your Husband Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Can you spell countercultural? Does doormat come to mind? These verses are not the first words of Peter that make the hair on the back of a 21st century necks bristle a bit. The Holy Spirit stands behind these words. Verbal inspiration means that every word of Scripture is His word. If we get past the shock of this, we find the advice of Peter to be the wonderful way of a truly godly wife. We will not deal with the question of whether a Christian woman ought to marry someone outside the faith. In Peter's day, it may have happened often enough that a woman became a Christian and her husband was dragging along behind. It still may happen often in places where the Christian faith is not the dominant faith, like Japan. And it still may happen here. A Christian woman may be rowing the spiritual boat of her family while her husband is an anchor at the rear. 
even after becoming believers, men do not grab hold of the oars of faith very rigorously. Women in marriages like this bear a special cross. What should they do? It is not a new thing for men to complain over a couple of beers about the ball and chain at home. Even Proverbs compares a nagging wife to something like Chinese water torture. Too many words, too many times, just aren't very effective. And yet, many strong Christian women have a legitimate desire to see a lagging husband become a believer, or a stronger believer and a true spiritual head. By the way, this is God's will for the family. Not that the man just lead in other ways, but that he lead in faith and prayer and love. What shall a woman do? Be a Christian, live her faith, pray, and quietly go about the task of following Jesus. She is an heir of life. Her sins have been covered. Even the mistake, if this is the case, of marrying someone she knew would be an anchor holding her back in life and her path of faith, working against Christ. Heaven is hers through Christ. And the goal is that heaven also be the final destination of both her and her husband, and her children. She certainly must teach the children what her husband should. Nagging won't do. We pretty much know that by instinct. Outward beauty may snag a man, but it won't change him. So an over-concentration on that won't win him. But following him as head, as long as that is not following into sin or away from Christ, is the instruction Peter gives. And it is the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter cites the examples of Sarah, father Abraham's wife. For all his faith, Abraham pulled off some real bonehead plays. Sarah remained faithful to her calling. Thus Peter writes this about her. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. A husband who does not do what he ought is a cross, a cross for a Christian woman to bear. But it is a cross that many women have willingly carried. Jesus carried a much heavier cross. His cross is our hope and our life. This devotion was written by Pastor Mark Falk. We'll close with us on today by Koine, A mighty fortress is our God.
God, a trusty shield and weapon. He helps us free from every need that has us now taken. The
You've been listening to Canaan Bound Podcast. This episode was first shared in October of 2018. For more information, visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com. There you'll find links on how you can support the artist and also support their music. We encourage you to visit a Wells ministry location nearest you. Visit wells.net. Thanks for joining us. And remember his promised rest. <laughs>